Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm Head of Money and Markets here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Head of Personal Finance. So, Sarah, there has been plenty of debate about Martha Stewart as a swimsuit model at the age of 81. I mean, it's not the kind of thing I can imagine my own grandma doing at that kind of age. But as we're living longer, we can all expect to carry on for a lot longer in whatever we do now. Yes, I mean, I, I think I can carry on not being a swimmer model well into my 80s. But, but seriously, <laughs> people's plans for their 70s and 80s are far more exciting than they once were. With so many people living longer and wanting to live better as well. Yeah, so this week we're going to be looking at the investment implications for living longer in an episode we're calling Investing in Your Future. We'll hear from Helen Morrissey about the impact that living longer has on pensions and what we can do to prepare for the decades ahead. And we're going to be speaking to Sophie Lundy-Yates, our lead equity analyst, about investing for income as we get older. Then we'll spend some time on the investing opportunities offered by the fact we're living longer and the companies that are benefiting as boomers reach old age. And we'll be speaking to Nick Sanderson, the CEO from Audley Group, which runs retirement villages in the UK. He's also chair of ARCO, the trade body for the retirement living sector. And we'll chat to him about the growth of luxury retirement living, which, you know, it always makes me think of the Thursday murder club. So, Nick, there's been a real growth at this end of the market, hasn't there? Yes, there absolutely has. We're catching up with the rest of the world. America, Australia, New Zealand, with specialist communities for older people where they have a lot of active lifestyle as well as care when they need it. And uh, we're a very long way behind here. Well, thanks, Nick. I'm really looking forward to hearing a lot more about what happens at the Audley uh, Group. I mean, I just love the Thursday Murder Club, by the way, Sarah. I mean, it does seem appropriate that Richard Osman, the TV quizmaster supreme, has turned his hand to clue writing instead, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, it is one of my favourites. What about you, Nick? His mother lives in a retirement community down in the South Downs. So that was, it was based on that. And uh, when it first came out, I was assured it was uh, that she lived in one of our villages until I found that she didn't. Well, you never know. You never know. I think there's plenty of books and films to come. Uh, but anyway, if you, if you want to get clued up about what's happening in the world of funds... Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research at Targaryen Lansdowne, will be talking us through her thoughts about funds for retirement income. So when we look at longevity, we have to consider two things. Just how long today's babies are expected to live and how long today's 65-year-olds are expected to live. And this really is key when you're talking about living for longer. So in 2020, the average man of 65 could expect to live another 20 years and the average woman... 22 years. Yes, and in the past decade, this has risen, but at a slower pace compared to the previous couple of decades. But it still shows there's plenty of life left in us at 65. It means we need to have plenty of assets to use at this stage. And the good news is that on average, older people actually do have money to spend. So clearly there are vast differences as there are with any age group. But those households where the head is retired are the wealthiest with average wealth of around £489,000. And that's partly because almost three quarters of them own their home outright. There's the concern that this won't always be the case, though, as rising prices make it harder to get onto the property ladder and more people hold defined contribution pensions rather than a defined benefit one. Now, it's one reason why our research this month showed that one in three people who expect an inheritance 
or already have one say they'll need to use it to help fund their retirement. So there's a lot riding on the value of bricks and mortar, it seems. So it's going to be vital to have the right plans in place. This feels like a really good time to bring in Helen Morrissey, Head of Retirement Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. So we were just then talking about life expectancy, Helen, and obviously this has a huge impact on our retirement planning, doesn't it? Yes, so the concern is that people underestimate how long they're going to live. And as a result, they don't save enough to give them a decent income all the way through retirement. People tend to look at their parents and their grandparents and think that they'll live to a similar age, when in fact they could be living much, much longer. Now, we did a quick poll on LinkedIn just a couple of weeks ago, asking people how long they think they'll be retired for. Now, around 8% thought they would live less than 10 years in retirement, which is way off in most cases. A further 31% said they expected retirement to last up to 20 years, which is getting closer to the right ballpark, but it is still likely to be underestimating it for many people and they could find themselves underprepared for retirement with little time to do anything about it. Yeah, so that's the big issue, isn't it? So you could be retired for decades. So how much do you actually need to save? So that's an interesting one. So the the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association have produced their retirement income standards, which I think are really helpful. So according to the PLSA, if you want a minimum standard of income in retirement, you should be looking at spending around 12,800 per year for a single person or around 20,000 pounds a year for a couple. Now, that will cover your basics and a few extras, but you wouldn't be able to run a car or go on holiday overseas, for instance. A moderate retirement income standard would be more like £23,300 per year for a single person and £34,000 a year for a couple. Now, this would get you an overseas holiday and the ability to run a car. Now, if you're after something more luxurious, we're looking at more like 37,300 per year for a single person and 54,500 a year for a couple. Now, if you live in London, you have social care costs or you don't own your home outright, these numbers will likely be higher. So can you break that down, Helen, into the size of pension pot you might need? Yeah, okay. So when the PLSA did the research, they estimated that a couple would need pension pots of around £121,000 each to get up to the moderate standard of living um, and £328,000 each to get to the more comfortable standard. The minimum standard of living would be largely covered by a full new state pension for a single person and for a couple it would cover them. Now, this was based on annuity rates of £6,200 per £100,000 and both partners having a full new state pension, which is currently £10,600 per year each. So it looks pretty clear that we're going to have to have a real plan in place if we're going to be able to properly afford the retirement we want. And, And of course, we need to make sure we contribute as much as we can reasonably afford to. I suppose it also shows the importance of the state pension and helping people kind of build up their standard of living in retirement. You're right. Um, The state pension is the very backbone of people's retirement planning. But as the population ages, we are seeing it coming under real pressure. 
As the state pension bill booms, the government is always looking at how to keep a lid on its cost. And we've seen a lot of debate on whether state pension age increases need to be accelerated to manage these costs. However, this means that we face the difficult decision of either having to work longer until we receive it, or else we have to save even more into our pensions to give us the flexibility to retire early if we need to. So, Helen, we've also seen the removal of the lifetime allowance, which should mean people can continue to save without being clobbered by another tax bill. Yes, in theory, but it is worth saying that Labour has said they plan to reverse this if they get into power. So that has thrown people's plans into uncertainty. With a general election looming in the not-too-distant future, it's an uncertainty that people could do without. Okay, well, thank you, Helen, for bringing a bit more certainty into the equation. But there still is plenty of food for thought there. I mean, we talked a little about the need to invest more for our retirement. And one thing people might think about at a time like this is dividend income. So this feels like a super good time to bring in Sophie Lund-Yates. So Sophie, we know when it comes to investments in retirement, there's a lot more of a focus on income. So that's stocks that could provide a level of income through dividends rather than growth in the share price. So who have you looked at? Thanks, Susanna. So first things first, I should say that yields are variable and shouldn't be taken in isolation as a reliable indicator of future income. So this means staying invested through retirement won't be right for everyone. And it's important to weigh up the benefits and risks of secure and flexible retirement options. Now, there are certain companies who are more geared towards dividends and have a better ability to pay them than others. So one of those types has typically been utilities, and that's because they offer an essential service. So meaning revenue should, in theory, be more steady than some other types of business. So I've been looking at National Grid with this in mind. So National Grid is one of the world's largest investor owned energy utilities responsible for delivering electricity and gas to homes and communities across an enormous network. Work. So as a bit of context, the group has close to 20,000 miles of electricity and gas transmission and distribution networks. So everything from those overhead cables you see running through the country and gas pipes. Um, and that's a highly simplified version, if I'm being completely honest. So there's simply not many companies that can do what National Grid does. And it's also pushing very hard on the green energy front with huge efforts to accelerate electrification. So this comes with very large investment needs though, which together with regulatory action because of the cost of living crisis is keeping a lid on profits. Um, The overall relative steadiness of the group's revenue feeds into a forward dividend yield of 5.3%, which isn't insignificant, but as I said, isn't guaranteed. I'd caveat slightly with the fact that National Grid's valuation faces a little bit more uncertainty than some other companies because of the nature of the electric strategy shift. So Sophie, you've, you've had a dig into a tobacco giant too, which, which if I'm honest, it does seem a bit back to front when we're talking about people living longer. You are totally right. Um, and really, I've been looking at British American tobacco or bats. Um, and there are some things that need addressing first and foremost, you know, as you were just hinting there. So the sensitive nature of tobacco stocks means that many institutional or even individual investors can't or won't invest in the sector. So that can keep a lid on demand and therefore valuation. Now, news of a hefty $635 million settlement with the US authorities over historical dealings in North Korea has seen 
seen bat sentiment come under further pressure too. So with most of this penalty already accounted for in last year's costs, you know, I'm, I'm not overly concerned with that financially, but it's something that more socially minded investors may want to consider. Now, from a purely investment perspective, tobacco stocks have a stronger ability to pay dividends. You know, demand is reliable because of the nature of selling an addictive product. So there's a big focus on returns to shareholders because of the ceiling on valuations, which makes them potentially interesting options for income. BATS is a juggernaut, and despite industry challenges, market forecasts expect revenue to continue to inch forwards or inch towards the £30 billion mark over the next couple of years. Um, that's £30 billion mark over the next couple of years. Now, that scale combined with incredible pricing power has resulted in operating margins other consumer goods companies can only dream of. And with relatively low capital requirements, the groups delivered prestigious amounts of cash despite falling volumes. So debt is worth keeping an eye on um, and that's why the group's paused its share buyback programme. Now a key attraction for investors is likely to be the 9.4% prospective yield which is one of the highest in the FTSE 100. Now analyst forecasts suggest this year's dividend payments are 1.6 times covered by free cash flow which provides some comfort that the yield is sustainable Um, but once again it's really important to stress that no dividends can ever be guaranteed. For investors looking for more blue sky potential, BATS is one of the more exciting names in new categories of tobacco products. So by that, I mean that's things like vapes and heated tobacco. Um, But while that part of the business is still loss making, caution would be advised. Okay, thanks, Sophie. So what is the final name for this week? So I've talked about how complex companies that offer essential services can be more interesting when looking at dividend potential. And I think Verizon falls into that category. So Verizon is US based and is a telecommunications giant. I can't in good faith say it's the most interesting stock in the world, but there are some points to consider. There are only a very small handful of businesses that can do what it does. And I think we'd all agree that internet and phone coverage are essentials rather than nice-to-haves in today's world. So consumer is by far the larger of Verizon's two primary segments. It provides mobile and landline services directly to individuals and via wholesalers, as well as selling devices like smartphones and laptops. The business segment offers similar services to companies and government organisations. So more broadband connections and increasing demand for smartphones have historically provided a favourable backdrop to the group. Now, equipment sales act as a revenue diversifier, but subscriptions are where the real money's at. So once the group's paid for its infrastructure, each new client drops straight through to profit. Verizon is also throwing an awful lot at the rollout of 5G, which although potentially exciting, is still in early stages. So there's a risk involved because of the level of investment. There are also competitive angles to consider, I would say. So although there aren't too many fighters in the arena, wireless providers are basically only differentiated by price, which can make it tougher to inflate margins. Overall, Verizon generates shed loads of cash, and that helps underpin the 7.4% dividend yield. Oh, thanks, Sophie. You've got quite a range of things to consider there. So thanks very much for that. I should say that this isn't personal advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. Investing in an individual company isn't right for everyone because if that company fails, you could lose your whole investment. So, of course, we all need to think about living longer and the impact on our own financial lives. But when so many of us are living longer, it also opens up new opportunities for businesses. 
Certainly does, Sarah. So this does feel like a good time to bring in Nick Sanderson from Audley Group, which runs 20 retirement villages in the UK, which includes properties featuring really high-end facilities like health and fitness clubs, spas, tennis courts and a restaurant. So plenty to keep you occupied. So Nick, tell me who the typical kind of uh, retiree is in one of your villages. We have two brands, actually. We have Audley, which is our more premium brand, and Mayfield, which is emerging uh, a mid-market offer. But our Audley customers are typically some of the people you've described, actually. They're almost without exception homeowners who sold their home and downsized to buy in one of our one of our villages. Um, they are, as you'd expect, people who've been successful in their lives, who've built up a big capital value in a home as well as savings and income and um, are deciding, I think quite appropriately, that it's probably not the most efficient thing to do to stay in their existing large family home with so much capital tied up in it, choosing to what the Americans would call right-size, move into something that's age-appropriate with a great lifestyle, as you mentioned, some of the facilities we've got, but particularly because with us they also have the assurance that if they need anything later in life in terms of support, we're there to provide them right the way through to hopefully the end of their lives. So you mentioned it earlier, actually, it's, it's our slogan really, which is helping them to live better for longer. So you mentioned right-sizing there, but it still comes at quite a cost, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. well, there's two, two stages to the cost. There's the capital cost and the revenue cost. So the capital cost is equivalent to buying any new apartment in a location close to where they live. We, we stretch from Yorkshire to Devon to Kent, so it depends on the local housing market. And, and the actual price of the property on entry is very similar to what they'd pay for a, an equivalent in just the general housing market. So average size of an orderly apartment is around about 1,000 square feet, which gives you two bedrooms, two bathrooms, sitting room, dining room, outside space. Um, and they're probably selling a house maybe 50% or even twice as big as that to downsize into that. But the price is very similar. So if they're selling at, I don't know, let's say a million pounds, they're probably buying from us at around 750 to 800. But then there are ongoing charges, yes. So they pay a management charge for to enjoy all of the benefits of the facilities that are available, a bit like club membership, if you like. So they've got the spa, the pool, the gym, um, a restaurant to enjoy and all the grounds that go with it. And then they pay, part of their fee is deferred until they leave. So they pay a percentage of the value of their home when they when they leave. So it's sort of putting, sort of converting revenue cost to capital cost, if you like. Can you tell me a bit about the demand for it? I mean, is, is there a lot of demand for property at this end? Do you know what, actually, I think particularly for our Mayfield customers, which is closer to the mid-market, it's, it's huge. We're very small, as I mentioned. There's only around 50,000 units in the UK. There's that number of units in Christchurch, New Zealand alone. So, I mean, we're, we're a long, long way off where we probably should be. And I think part of, the, part of the apparent lack of, I wouldn't say demand, is just the lack of supply. There just isn't the, uh, the range of alternatives in, the, in this country to make that offer. If you went to the States, typically, I mean, you could argue that Florida is one big retirement village. That's sort of what it is. People flock from the north to go and live in Florida in their retirement. And most of them live in managed communities where there's this sort of range of services. So it's not through a lack of demand. It's really just through a lack of supply. I'm afraid my, myself and my colleagues just haven't done a good enough job of building enough of it. It does play in a bit to the housing supply situation in the UK. 
we know, well know, that we're not building as many houses as we should be in the UK and haven't been for decades, which means that the housing market for land, the limited land that's available, tends to be dominated by major house builders who, frankly, can build and sell anything they create. So the incentive for them to enter into new markets, which they would consider include older people, is pretty pretty limited. Um, so the supply side is dominated by house builders who don't really have any interest in it. So it's a bit of a niche market moment, but it's growing significantly. Nick, do you think people who are approaching retirement underestimate just how much money they will need to really be able to afford the, the kind of facilities that you've been describing? Do you get disappointed people who maybe turn up at the showroom and think, actually, I, I just can't stretch that far? Yeah, we do. And, and I'll tell you what it is, I think, in part, and I think you'd all recognise this from, from the work you do. Many years ago, we had a piece of research done by YouGov, which said to people, do you believe you should spend all of your personal wealth before you die? And I think 83% of them said, yes, you know, there's no pockets in shrouds, let's spend it all before I go. And how well managed we'd all be if we got to that point. When we then said to them, and do you include your housing wealth within that? 95% of them said, no, I don't, which is the legacy they think they're passing on in terms of an inheritance. And that, I think, is the difference, is they don't see the transfer of capital to revenue to spend capital on revenue expenses. So when I described how we, we you pay for what you have from Audley, which is sell your house, downsize, release capital, they don't see that as a source of potential revenue income to pay for ongoing charges so they typically have to be someone who has wealth generated from elsewhere that can create an income to allow them to meet those costs and do they underestimate them well with us not really because it's very predictable because it's fixed costs and it's for the life of their occupancy and where i think they may get it wrong is actually in anticipating their length of stay their longevity effectively and of course part of part of what we do hopefully is to keep them living better for longer it's why rental has never really caught off as much here as in the states because people find it harder with a large rent payment to be able to predict what their likely expenses are going to be during their period of occupancy and I suppose one of the sort of great unknowns when you're looking at this part of life is the cost of things like care. Um, I mean, when when people have care needs, is that something that they will then, you know, have on top of, you know, when they're staying with you, for example, or would, they, would you expect them to move on and, and sell up and use that money to pay for care? No, typically with us, I mean, the whole point of us, I mean, somebody, a colleague of mine said to me recently, I think our whole job is to keep people out of care homes. Nobody ever wants to go into a care home if they can possibly avoid it, nor indeed be in a acute bed in a hospital without being able to be discharged. So our job is to have people in the right housing, built for purpose, safer, and then provide them with an environment which hopefully will keep them safer for longer, which will reduce the chances of them needing very expensive care later in their lives. But that's done partly by us introducing support to them through their years. So we have care staff on site who can help them with basic daily functions, getting up and going to bed, shopping, delivering meals, etc., which will allow them to stay independent for longer. So it, it comes, but at a much, hopefully a lower cost than what typically happens in the UK, which is people do nothing, deny they want any help. I'm sure you've got, got relatives who have said to you at time, leave me alone, 
I'm perfectly all right. I'm going to stay in this house until I fall down the stairs, at which point it's too late and I'll have to stop. At which point the cost becomes prohibitively expensive. Um, this is a way of hopefully managing that process and making it more affordable. But yes, do they pay for care as they need it? They do. In this country, unless you've got assets of less than £24,000, everybody does. Sounds like you're describing Elizabeth and uh, her husband in the Thursday Murder Club there. Uh, but anyway, uh, go, just going back um, just to how you operate, what happens when, you know, it does come to the point where either people do leave or, or, or they die in your villages? What happens to the resale value? How much can you resell the properties for and can they still leave a legacy? Yeah, it's a really good question because it, it has been a, a, a sector problem, which is one of the reasons I think it's been held back. The traditional routes to retirement housing were, and I won't name them, but there's a dominant provider in the UK, or two actually, dominant providers in the UK, who provide a more traditional sort of sheltered housing, retirement housing model. And truthfully, their resale values have been not very strong. Um, after the initial sale at a high value, the scheme becomes older and more mature and people age in it and resale values tended to be quite poor. That's not the case in our, in either in Audley or in our sector. We've had a lot of work done by JLL recently, which confirms that over the last 10 years, all of our prices have pretty much tracked house price inflation. So generally speaking, if going to my example of earlier, if somebody buys an apartment for us from £500,000, the expectation is that when you come to sell it, you will get your £500,000 plus normal house price inflation. That we've got lots of evidence to show. Part of the reason for that is because we're sort of aligned with our owners because, I mentioned earlier, some of our income comes from getting a percentage of the value when it's sold, which means we're very much aligned with an owner or indeed their families as inheritors to get them best value because a percentage of it comes to us as part of our remuneration so generally speaking pretty good yeah and the legacy they buy a long leasehold interest just like buying a normal flat in the high street from a, a major house builder and that's what they've got to sell at the end of it what we're seeing at the moment is people amassing quite a lot of wealth as they get older but this is sort of you know, they've got sitting on housing wealth that they may have bought when it was a lot cheaper and there's seen this phenomenal house growth and then obviously you have a lot of people with final salary pension schemes so both of those things aren't guaranteed to sort of continue happening in the future do you sort of have any concerns about whether this luxury lifestyle is going to be affordable for people at, you know as we get sort of 10 20 years down the line well that's a good point there's also actually interestingly the demographic bulge is going to work its way through in the next 20 years the, the baby boomers post-war babies so actually a lot of the the demographic is changing but you know what the supply is so limited in the uk that i think there'll always be we'll never get to a scale where it's threatened I think there are other countries where they may be getting close to a point where they may be vulnerable. But that point about housing wealth is a very valid one. It's one we're very aware of. You know, people talk about our customers over 65s having £2 trillion worth of housing. Something's only worth £2 trillion if there are people with £2 trillion to buy it. And it, ironically, their children and grandchildren seem to be are struggling to buy their own housing. So the idea that that wealth is recycled to the generations down to buy the asset that they're supposed to be inheriting. Well, there is a word for that, which I won't use on 
on this podcast, but it's caused the financial downfall of many organizations, assuming that that goes on forever. So we're very sensitive to that. Um, but in reality, you know, there are ways we can introduce mechanisms to make it more affordable. Is it a way of meaning that they will reduce cost later in life by avoiding expensive care? Yes. Is it actually just something that people will enjoy and get fun from? Yes. So thanks, Nick. I mean, really fascinating. It does seem to be a retirement we'd all quite like. In fact, I've been talking to my friends recently about us all planning to live in the same village. We'd all be ageing ravers, I think. <laughs> That's what we do, basically, is create communities. It's sort of replicating the way communities used to be. So rather than get a different house in a different village, just come and live in one of ours. I recommend it. Yeah, the idea of ageing ravers is quite terrifying to me. I should be one of the ageing quiet people who sits it very quietly in my home. Okay, now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Emma, you've been looking into retirement income from funds, haven't you? Yes, we think funds could be a good way to generate income from a basket of different companies. We think this can reduce risk as you diversify your income stream, although yields can be variable and are not guaranteed. So we've picked three funds that can take charges from capital, which can increase the yield, but can reduce the potential for capital growth. So what's the first one? The first one is Artemis Income, which aims to provide investors with a steady and growing income alongside capital growth over the long term. The managers, Adrian Frost, Nick Shenton and Andy Marsh, invest mainly in larger UK companies, but they also invest in some medium-sized and overseas companies when they find great opportunities. So the managers look for companies with recurring revenues, and that's because these businesses are more likely to have consumers and therefore profits and therefore dividends in the future. So we think the manager's combined skill, discipline and experience puts them in a strong position to deliver healthy income and long-term growth. But as ever, there are no guarantees. So you've also been looking at a European fund, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the Polar Capital European ex-UK Income Fund. So this also aims to deliver an income of greater than the index. That's the MSCI Europe ex-UK index. And it aims to grow investors' money over the long term with fewer ups and downs along the way. So the manager, Nick Davis, mainly invests in larger European companies that he thinks are undervalued, but have the potential to bounce back. He aims to invest in cash generative businesses with strong balance sheets and a competitive position that others may struggle to replicate. Given the fund's income focus, Davis wants to invest in companies yielding at least 2.5% with the potential to grow their dividends over time. The fund can be quite concentrated, which does add risk, and the manager also has the flexibility to use derivatives, which can magnify any gains or losses and also increases risk. But we do like the defensive nature of the approach and the disciplined investment process. And what's your final idea? A fixed income or bond fund, and that's from Royal London. It's Royal London Corporate Bond. And this aims to provide investors with an income alongside some capital growth from investing in investment-grade bonds. So managers Charlene Shah and Matt Franklin believe credit markets are inefficient and therefore offer opportunities that active managers can exploit. So the managers start by forming a view on the direction of the economy and considering factors like economic growth, inflation and interest rates, quite difficult to do at the moment, this helps them decide which areas are best to invest in. And then Shah and Franklin feed off ideas from the wider investment team, the fixed interest investment team at Royal London, and they also do their own research. 
So we think the team's edge comes from their detailed research into lower profile parts of the market. The fund has a focus on the lower quality end of investment grade corporate bonds, which can make it more adventurous and it invests in more higher risk, high yield unrated bonds, which can add risk. Thanks, Emma. There's loads to look into there. I should also add that before investing in a fund, you should make sure the fund's objectives align with your own and that you understand the fund's specific risks. So any new investment should form part of a diversified portfolio. And if you're not sure what's right for your circumstances, you should ask for advice. As always, there's no guarantees with investing. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. So you could get back less than you invest. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now... It's that time for our stat of the week. And I thought we should close with an idea of just how many people are 65 or over and how society is ageing. So I went to the census from 2021. Super busy in my job. You just get into everything, it seems. Anyway, compared it to 10 years earlier. So Sarah, if the number of people aged 65 and over was 9.2 million in 2011, what do you reckon it is now? Oh, well, I think it's probably safe to assume it's grown. <laughs> and I guess it's in double figures by now. Let's say, let's say it's gained a million. Actually, it's a bit more than that. There are 11 million people aged 65 and over in the UK. And that's almost a fifth of the population. Oh, I'd say that's a huge demand for retirement properties there. But then again, an increasing number of them won't have retired yet. And of course, when we get to that age, we probably have to work for even longer. Done. And I was hoping I'd have plenty of time to get stuck into more whodunits instead. Oh, well, I think about your love of whodunits, I was thinking in, you know, in Thursday murder club terms, I think you make a great Elizabeth. Why, thank you. Better get back to my clues. <laughs> That's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 30th of May 2023 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Unlike the security offered by cash, investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is me to thank our guests, Nick, Sophie, Helen, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye.